Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. We technology, do, that's yeah, what it technology. was. Technology, we can do words and writing and With books. books, the old-fashioned technology. But you've got an author in today. I, look, I do have. I've got Laura Elizabeth Woollett. Welcome, Laura. This is our first time with you. Yeah, that's right. Th- thank you. Oh, it's exciting. <laughs> um, oh, it's always good fun. Laura has written 12 love stories. There are 12 women over different places and time. Now, Laura, what do these women have in common? Um, well, the main thing they have in common, which is quite a big thing, is they're all um, in love with very bad men. Very bad <laughs> men. And that's the title of the book, yeah. The Love of a Bad Man. At the back of the book, you've listed quite an extensive bibliography of books, film and television. <laughs> How did you choose the, 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 the bad men? Um, yeah, that was a big job. I think I, I kind of just looked for similar stories online. I had a few in mind when I started the book, but um, yeah, I, I looked for similar stories and um, women who were in similar situations. And there were some that I did research on, but didn't end up including. And mm. yeah, but this book doesn't read like a crime novel. No, absolutely not at all. How did you get the voice of the women? Um, well, through through research, mostly through. Um, doing things like reading court transcripts and um, watching, in some cases there were, um, you know, recordings of voices and stuff um, and letters and all sorts of things really to draw on. Um, and most of them are written in first person, aren't they? They're all in first they're, person, I yeah. thought, yeah, I yeah. was <laughs> going to say all, then I thought, mm, better be check on that one. <laughs> and uh, having the women tell their own story really mm-hmm. brings you into that, the, into that feeling of empathy for them. yeah. Well, let's have a try. How about reading a little bit from page three? Yeah, sure. This is introducing Blanche. Baby, wake up, he says, and he's kissing my eyelids, my cheeks, trailing his fingers over the bib of my nightgown, and it's so soft it must be a dream. Buck home, buck home after 15 months. So where's Buck home from? He's home from prison. <laughs> yes. Okay, now we're going to jump to page 11. See, Blanche, we, we know doesn't like violence. One thing I thank my lucky stars for is that Buck never gets violent when he's drinking. Not like my first husband, who used to bounce me against the walls and other things so awful I can't have children because of it. Yeah. So this is Blanche and Buck. They want to live a life together away from his family. The Barrows. And it's here I'm thinking, Blanche Barrow. Now, I know I've heard of Barrow (laughs) and it connected. (laughs) Yeah. Bonnie and Clyde Barrow. <laughs> yeah. So how, what connection is um, Buck with that family? Yeah, so Buck is um, Clyde's less famous brother who was part of his gang for um, a few months and um, Blanche is Clyde's sister-in-law. Mm. Um, so they're, they're the less kind of famous characters of that whole story. And here's Blanche wanting to get away from the family and they try yeah. to but we all know how that ended up. Yeah. Anyway, there she writes about the bickering, the dirt and the tears but all worth it because it's all for the love of a man. <laughs> oh. So Blanche is in America during the Depression times and the mm-hmm. next story it moves to 1930s in Germany yeah. and 
Oh, to the 40s, rather, in Germany. And Eva meets someone so important, she doesn't even name him. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't need to be named. <laughs> David's shaking his head. Have you guessed? Well, if you, you hear the name Eva and you think, oh, OK. In Germany? Yes. There's probably mm-hmm. a lot of Evas in Germany. Mm-hmm. And that was my, oh, my goodness moment <laughs> when I realised who it was. Yeah. This he or him mm. give her lots and lots of things, but is so often so busy, he's not there for her. Yeah. So how does she get him to pay her attention? Um, suicide attempts, mm. a couple of them, and um, yeah, that that was her way really. But she um made two suicide attempts. Her third attempt yeah. was successful. Her it third was, was the, successful, the yeah. cyanide capsule he gave her in the bunker. Yeah. Now, Eva, um, he, was often, he often called Eva my good girl, mm. and which her father did too. So yeah. it, there's a lot of interesting descriptions yeah. in there. Well, how about Martha from page 49? Yeah, sure. So most folks like, think us large women are sexless, old before our time. That just isn't true. Even before Ray, I tried to get it regular, every week if I could. I guess it must have done something to me, having my brother sneak into my room so many nights as a kid. Got me used to it early. So this Ray, how did she meet Ray? Uh, Through a Lonely Hearts program, um, an ad in a newspaper, and um, he was a con artist who looked for lonely women to scam, but she ended up latching onto him and joining him. And helping him out because that was the way to keep her with him. Yeah. Well, try number 60, page 61. I'd Look, I hope this is just, <laughs> just little snapshots here of, yeah, um, sure. of our characters. What we looked for were the believers, moony-eyed and superstitious, who wore their bleeding hearts like brooches and their loneliness like too much cheap perfume. Cheap perfume, yeah. So she, she, well, you had described what she knew were going to be new victims. Mm. Now, this Martha had worked as a nurse in a children's ward and, quote, with little ones coming in near purple with croup. So she was prepared for the last struggle of one of her child victims. (laughs) Carol. Now, she was a young girl. She Mm -hmm. was taught to drive and shoot and possibly groomed by Charlie. Yeah. But she made a mistake, and her mistake was saying no. Yeah. (laughs) When he wanted to propose, when he wanted to marry her. To marry her, yeah. So what did he do? So he killed her family and took her along as kind of a hostage on a crime spree. Um, Yeah, of uh, just a couple of days, but um, quite a lot of people were murdered during that time. Oh, absolutely. Quite often through some of these, we, we sort of had the feeling that um, the women loved the men, but the men had different um, sexual desires, I suppose. Mm. There was Myra and the well-read Ian. Now, page 88. Page 88. Oops. <laughs> We became lovers that night on the old green settee in Grand's front room. For his earlier talk, I sensed from his movements that he was as inexperienced as I was, with women at any rate. More than once he brushed against my backside and had to be guided forward. I kept on my girdle and my cardigan. He kept on everything save his shoes and his coat. At the end of it, he looked as clean as ever, but rather worn. Yeah. 
Well, he was most affectionate to her, to her after she had helped him disposing of bodies mm -hmm. in that dark moor. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and look, when you read a book of murder of, of women, then you come across Jan. That's my name. <laughs> and I thought, oh no, what kind of fella am I going to fall in love with? Yeah. And 18 year old, the Janice in this book, she wears glasses and has epileptic fits. But Cam pays her attention and introduces her to what kind of magazines? Bondage, SM. Bondage, SM. Yeah. And quote, and he hangs me up in the woods again. Well, they marry. He builds a basement space with ropes and cameras. And she lies about being pregnant. Oh, it's a <laughs> dastardly end, that one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, page 179. I told you we're going to flit around here. Are these all based on historical figures? Um, well, mm -hmm. absolutely. That's one of your questions later. Yeah. Sorry, Jan. No one ever said my mind was quick, but they did say I was too clever to waste my life with the likes of David Burney, as opposed to Mac, who, even though he was dumber than dog shit, never broke the law. So we know that David has definitely broken the law, along with Kathy. Where was he when, uh, when, where was Kathy when David came back into her life? Um, she was in the maternity ward, recovering from, um, uh, Childbirth and yeah, prolapse. Childbirth. Yeah. 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 So she left her family. Yeah, she had um six children with a different husband and um So one eighty two. One eighty two, yeah. David was highly sexed. He's always up about six hours before me. Sometimes he steals a quick route even before even without bothering to wake me. One, one in the morning, one straight after work, two before bed, at least. There are days when everything down there feels like sandpaper and my piss burns like acid. But at least I don't have to worry about getting pregnant anymore. She was, oh, sorry. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. David tells me he wanks on his work breaks too. If I don't, I want to throw spanners, fight other blokes, you know. Oh, dear, dear, dear. So if he doesn't get enough sex, sex, he gets really, really angry. Yeah. So, but she wasn't enough. No. So what did she help him do? Um, basically kidnap and Oof. rape and murder four Oof. women. Yes. <laughs> some of the characters, some of the women here are drawn to the man and then there's religion. Mm -hmm. This I thought was fascinating. Well, but Carla... This is a quote. The more I think about it, the more I think I must have been totally crazy, that and under his spell. Paul was very handsome, but um, she ended up helping him rape her own sister. Yeah. And then you sort of were left with a little question. Did she find religion to ease her consciousness <laughs> or ease her sentencing? Yeah, I think it was the latter, definitely. Mm, mm. <laughs> and then... Page 109, we've got beautiful men, but we've also got beautiful girls. Yeah. Some of us are cheerleaders, choir girls, homecoming queens. Some of us are wallflowers, just learning to let our hair down. We are, without exception, beautiful, inside and out. Christ made us that way, but not the Christ you believe in. Who was this Christ? This was Charles Manson. Yes, and so this was the family in Los Angeles. 
there, we also write about Marceline who followed Jim Jones into Jonestown back in 1978 where it led into 900 mass suicides. And Wanda and Brian. Wanda was our last of the 12 characters in this. Mm -hmm. Who did they become? Um, they became, I don't really know how to pronounce her name. She called herself Hefzeba and he called himself Emmanuel, which yeah. um, means Christ. So, and uh, he prophesied that he held the keys to heaven and she had to do all the heavy lifting yeah. <laughs> of material things. Yeah. And also he prophesied that he needed seven wives. Mm -hmm. mm, oh, dear. And I liked, well, there's one that we haven't talked about here because she has a similar interest as you did. You wanted to get into the life of these writers. Oh, yeah. And there's Veronica. Yeah. <laughs> No, so just tell us, she was a writer, an actress, an, act, an actress, an artist. She wanted a character to play a serial killer. So what did she do about it? She wrote to a convicted serial killer in prison and um, started an affair with him through letters. Really. Look, this was absolutely incredible. I got to the end and thought, oh my goodness, what incredible women. Mm -hmm. And, well, not overeducated, I don't think any of them were. Mm -hmm. But then you gave us a little biography yeah. of them at the end. Yeah. And, and th things like Blanche that we started off with, Blanche Barrow, who ended up doing six years in jail, remarried, had three uh, children and lived until she was 77. Yeah. <laughs> David's shaking his head. <laughs> Truth is stranger than fiction in, in this regard. Look, this was an absolute surprise, this book. It was mm. just such a delight. Not a delight, because you can't call murder a delight. But getting this... the, the And uh, Laura um, Willett has got the whole feel of these women in the language they speak, their, uh, whether they were from England or America or... Perth, mm. you know, that, that type of feel for these women. You did it very well. Thank you. Is, is this your first book? Um, no, I actually had a novel published in early 2014. Um, through On a, crime? No, it wasn't a crime novel, actually. It was a oh. te teacher-student relationship story. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. So what this is, it's a blend of creative fiction with true crime. Mm -hmm. Very readable. A lot of fun. So, Laura Elizabeth Willett, thank you and congratulations. The book is The Love of a Bad Man, Man and it's published by Scribe. Well, I don't know if I can top that, but my author <laughs> is Isabel Lee and the title is coming close, A Chinese Affair. It is about relationships, but uh, not quite on the same scale. So here we go. There is a bridge between cultures that is often forged through writing. In her collection of short stories, A Chinese Affair, Isabel Lee explores some of the ties that bind us. So, Isabel, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. Thrilled to be on your show. Now, you grew up in China, but migrated to Australia in 1999. Yeah, that's right. I've been in Australia for 17 years. The challenges of that change? Well, I grew up in China uh, after university. I went to Singapore and worked for a few years there. Then I came to Australia. I must say that um, Australia is a country, it's hard not to fit in, not to feel at home. I find that uh, Australia is beautiful and the people here are really lovely. When I first came, I, I live in Sydney, so I used to uh, cross the Harbour Bridge to go to work. And I thought this is just a slice of paradise. But you 
pick up on some of the challenges and difficulties and delights even in your collection of short stories here. What were some of the cultural challenges that you faced, the customs that were transferable and were not transferable? Life itself is a challenge. I think wherever you are and if you feel out of place, it could be a challenge, whether it's because of the language, because of the custom, or it could be just you are among the wrong group of people. So uh, I think the the sense of uh, it's like something that's like a joint that's not properly. Um, it's like the knee that's a, a little bit of uh, out of joint, uh, that feeling uh, out of place. So that's what I'm trying to write, and I feel that experience is almost universal and not limited to the migrant experience. Well, it is universal, but、mm. what you're able to do is bring a lot of the Chinese reference. And images and ideas to your writing. I mean, for example, the Mooncake Festival. That's、uh, Mooncake and Crab is one of the stories. What's significant about Mooncake? All、oh, right. So Mooncake. So Chinese culture it、um, uh, advocates for for unity. So the moon is sometimes full and sometimes it's not. So that represents the ups and downs of human life. So. Mid Autumn Festival. That's the fifteenth of the eighth lunar month, and that's autumn in China. And the moon is just the harvest moon. That's perfect and round, and that's the time when people celebrate unity, the family reunion.、And、it's a very important festival, and we eat mooncake. Do Australian readers or European readers appreciate the significance of those sorts of images? How adaptable are they in terms of crossing cultures? I feel that、um, they are very、um, easily appreciated by people from a different culture. The thing about storytelling is you allude to something, and the reader will just make up for the rest, and then they have that moment, aha, and that's where you really get them. But our illusions, our images, our ideas—we we have a canon of references that's often European, based on you know Shakespeare and all these other references that we understand. But we need to, in many ways, to be educated about those references from another culture in order to get that. Depth and dimension. Would I be correct?、Or? Yeah, that's very true. So in the、uh, story, I actually had the protagonist telling the other dinner guests the legend of the of the moon cake. Yeah, of of, of the、uh, the moon festival. Yeah,、uh, and by telling them、uh, the story of the fairy who has gone to the moon, becomes in a way. Reflecting her own life, mirroring her own situation.、Mm. Now you've also got another story here: a fishbone in the throat, and what we have、um, is a is a character going through a range of difficulties. First and foremost, with his wife, who's、uh, a member of the Falun Gong, which is interesting, but also then in terms of getting a job here in Australia. So. Two things then that we、uh, I want to discuss, Falun Gong.、Uh, Falun Gong is、uh, a religious group in China and it's considered a cult. It's banned in China, isn't it's it? It's banned.、Yeah. It's definitely banned in China, but people, some people still、uh, practice secretly, and、uh, in Australia, it's certainly not banned. So what I want to show here is, it doesn't matter whether it's Falun Gong, it could be be any other religion. It's more the alienation, the estrangement between. 
the this, husband and the wife. The husband and the wife. And in this case, I just use Falun Gong quite conveniently. But it does sort of raise certain issues. I mean, there's that domestic level of partners getting on with each other and having different practices. So in many ways, that could be representative of two cultures getting on uh, is the first thing. But also, are you trying to suggest something about China or about living in different countries, say, because, as you say, Falun Gong, we're not worried about it here. It's banned in China. That notion of being able to practice something in one culture and not in another. Certainly, I think what is really important for me here is to do justice to the character who's a cleaner. And uh, he used to be a volleyball coach and he can't find a job. He can't practice his art, which is his volleyball coaching, he can't practice that here. Uh, and he's being, in a way, alienated from his family, marginalized from his family life. And his wife has joined this religion and she has some other things to anchor her while he is in a floating space. And he finds a volleyball, amateur volleyball group where he can function as a coach. But it also raises that question of people that do migrate and whether they can actually participate as they once did in their own culture and the challenges of finding a new life, a new direction. Indeed, David, and that's very challenging. And in his case, that becomes his lifeline. This little volleyball group becomes his lifeline. I mean, they, they, they are not professional at all compared to what he used to do in China, but it's his saving grace. So when that's under threat, that's very, very challenging for him. Another thing I want to get into is your actual writing style. So I'm going to read out a bit of a paragraph here uh, so the listener can get an appreciation of what's going on and then perhaps talk about it. And this is from A Fishbone in the Throat. With his poor English, he could never get work as a volleyball coach. So they took over a cleaning business from another Chinese couple. They bought a car. His wife found customers and did the scheduling. He did the work, together with one or two helpers, mostly mothers on three-month visas, who came to visit their children studying in Australia. They purchased their first home, a run-down brick veneer house on a small block of land, in a neighbourhood populated with Chinese and Koreans. It's a very matter-of-fact style. I'm just trying to get into your craft, basically, here. What can you tell us about how you write? Yeah, it's interesting that um, you said, as a matter of fact, someone else said it's toughness. There seems a, a toughness. Uh, I, I think you just, my characters, at least, just have to get on. It's very hard. Life is hard. You do whatever you can to make a life and make a living. And in this case, yes, there are all these um, sadness. He misses, his, he doesn't want to be here. This, this char character particularly, he doesn't want to be here. He'd rather be in China playing mahjong and having friends and so on. What I'm getting to is there's a sparseness about the way you write without ornamentation. And yet what comes through later is that uh, those notions, for example, in this story, a disconnection that he has. And so you're left looking at that, not being distracted necessarily by um, overt uh, description or, or things like that. Would I be correct? That comes back to the characters themselves, what kind of vocabulary they would have um, in their mind when they think about and reflect on their lives. So to me, language is really an important aspect of a person's life because you use pretty much language to think 
And in this case, I use very sparse language because I feel that's just going to be how the characters are looking at themselves. Well, this gets into another idea then, that how people that come from other countries can actually communicate. As you say, our language is how we think. If we can't say it, does it exist? That gets back into George Orwell, 1984. But the people then that come from other countries and the ability to express themselves, okay, yes, in their native land and uh, their native tongue, but not necessarily in the language of their adopted country. What frustrations are there? Yeah, this is, um, and you've captured a very important uh, subtext for this collection, is what I call pandemic muteness. So because they don't have the vocabulary and in a way they don't have the feelings and there's this sense of numbness and uh, that's probably related to the matter of fact um, tone in this uh, in in this particular piece so it is like you said you do not have the words and therefore you shut down your own feelings and certainly you are not able to express but there is something you feel there's something out of alignment something that's, that's well, that, there yeah that goes through a lot of the stories some of that is also uh, an imposition of the culture and the necessity to survive. There are several stories where people have married again and have relationships to negotiate uh, with siblings. There was another story by the riverbank. Somebody is leaving, ends up marrying a poet, but there are memories of a former relationship constantly there, as if that is the most important thing, but it's had to be sacrificed. Yeah, well, and this is a very interesting group of because uh, this collection is really about uh, the migrants, uh, the new Chinese migrants in a way. They're very different from the traditional Chinese migrants, the the gold rush that's pretty, uh, traditionally depicted of Chinese migrants. They are uh, large in number. They're born probably in the 60s, 70s. Um, they're usually uh, better educated and uh, aspirational, keen to become part of the global order. Their lives, they've been through significant historic changes in China. So Cultural Revolution and uh, the end of it, uh, the, the, the reform, political reform, and after that, the, poli uh, the political and economical rising of China. And now they come to Australia, and it's a new land, a new language, new people, new way of living. And when we move on in life, there's always something that we left behind, we hold dear to our chest, uh, to our heart. And for that part, you have to let something go. And even when it's very precious, for example, the homeland. It's idealized homeland, but it only exists in one's memory. There's another one you pick up on that uh, new generation, and that's in Pebbles and Flowers. And you've got Julian and Raven. Now, as I understand it, uh, Julian's Australian or of European origin, Raven's Chinese, her focus is economics and success, but they're both struggling to have a baby. And so there's something quite ordinary, the, the new order, but underneath it, that traditional challenges and concerns still exist. Yeah, that's so true. So this is a mixed marriage um, between um, two lovely, really lovely um, people, uh, Raven and Julian, but they struggled to have a child. It's, it's a rather poignant story. And you can see that the culture difference 
although it's underlying in, the, in their life, but it really is not a key focus. There's a the, more fundamental yeah. challenge that they're still facing regardless of the culture. Yes, exactly. So what I meant is no matter if you are Native Australian or if you are from any part of the world, really, at the end of the day, we are very similar and the struggle in a marriage are very similar as well. Indeed. We're unfortunately going to have to end the interview oh, right. there. The book, A Chinese Affair, which is a collection of short stories. The author, Isabel Lee, and it is a Margaret River Press release. So, Isabel, thank you very much for coming in today. Thank you, David. Well, there we are, Jan. We've covered a lot of sex and relationships. <laughs> and some a bit more perverse than others. So, but that's what reading's all about. Well, perversity, is that what reading's oh, all about? Oh, David, no. no. exploring, discovering, finding new ways of... Um, well, see, getting into other people's lives. Other people's lives, but changing our expectations. I mean, that notion of relationships um, with your author, but seeing it from another perspective, the emotive perspective, before realising who they are. Oh, yeah. And it changes your view oh, of that person. Absolutely. So it's amazing what you can do with There's words There's a lot of nasty women out there. Just be careful. I'm, <laughs> and, that's and why I'm still men. a bachelor, what do you reckon? <laughs> Next week, I've got another scrub author coming in, Jacinta Halloran, and she's going to be talking about the science of appearances. And if I had my... Um, and if you knew, you I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a lighthouse. Um, oh, you're in so, a lighthouse. Uh, so that's uh, where I am. Well, come back and be here to panel next week Next week, week so we will see you then. All the best.